Strange things are growing in our movies, TV shows, and books. There are so many weird and wonderful plants in the stories you know and love, but are they based in science or fiction? In each episode, we dive into the botany hidden in our favorite stories. We find out what's real and what's fantasy with help from the experts here at the Chicago Botanic Garden. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Erica. And this is Botanical Mystery Tour. Alice in Wonderland is the beloved and twisted tale of a girl who falls down the rabbit hole into a land of make-believe. It's a story originally published in 1865 and retold dozens of times in movies, television shows, video games, spinoff after spinoff, you name it. Alice meets lots of wacky characters along the way, like the White Rabbit, the Cheshire Cat, the Mad Hatter, the Queen of Hearts. But today we're focusing on the Caterpillar. We meet him in Chapter 5 of Lewis Carroll's book, where he's smoking a hookah and sitting atop a gigantic mushroom. Alice is having a bit of an identity crisis when she meets the caterpillar. Ever since she landed in Wonderland, she's been rapidly changing her size, growing and shrinking from all the food and drink, and she's feeling a little confused about how she sizes up in life. The caterpillar offers Alice pieces of the mushroom to solve her growth troubles. She eats them to get back to normal height, and her adventures in Wonderland go on. Alice's mushroom trip left us wondering about real-life mushrooms. There are the culinary kinds like portobello, shiitake, and porcini, but there are so many more out there. Some mushrooms have medicinal properties, others are psychoactive, and some are so toxic they're deadly. Today we're talking to Greg Mueller, Chief Scientist and Nagani Foundation VP of Science here at the Garden. His research focuses on mushrooms, and he's the Garden's resident fungi expert. Hi, Greg. Hi, guys. How are you doing today? Good. So let's be honest. The mushrooms in Alice in Wonderland are important to the story because they have special powers that do not exist in real life, correct? Okay, so in real life, we know mushrooms have many different properties, depending on the variety. Why do you think mushrooms are so important, and what have you learned about their many powers, so to speak? So, yeah, mushrooms have lots of powers, and I think the reason is if we have to think about um, the life cycle of the, of the mushroom. So when we think of mushrooms, we think of the, the cap and the stem that we buy in the store or that we see in the ground. Um, but most of the organism is growing in the soil or on the wood or in the leaf litter. It's composed of a mass of microscopic hyphae, microscopic filaments called the mycelium. And that mycelium is growing amongst all kinds of other critters. Uh, bacteria, other fungi, insects. And so to defend itself, to uh, be able to survive, uh, the fungi produce all kinds of compounds. And some of these compounds can be used by humans for good things. And uh, so they're important for their interactions with plants and animals. So that's really interesting that you set up a mushroom as an organism that needs to defend itself. What is the relationship between fungi and other plants? So one of the things that's cool about fungi is for the most part, none of them live in isolation. They're all somehow or another either decomposing something. So they're actually living off of dead organic material. They could be pathogens. So in other words, they're killing something and uh, living it as they're killing that. Or they can be symbionts. So they're actually living in a very close partnership 
with another organism that's benefiting that organism, but also benefiting the mushroom. It's a complicated world out there. Certainly was for Alice. Are there mushrooms that actually get large enough, like in the story, that uh, she's actually can like sit on top of it? A person could sit on top of the mushroom? I don't know if it's structurally sound enough, but the <laughs> biggest mushroom I've collected um, actually grows out of an abandoned leafcutter ants in um, Costa Rica, Guatemala, down into Brazil. And it was a little over three feet wide, about a foot, foot and a half tall, and weighed in at, let's see, this about um, 10 pounds. Okay. So, yeah. Dang. Like a little footstool mushroom. Little that's, footstool. that's what I'm so, picturing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm not sure it would hold Alice, but it's definitely as big as the picture of the, you know, it would hold the caterpillar. Okay. Uh, you know, smoking his hookah. It, it would do <laughs> Maybe that. the hookah can stay on the ground. Yeah. It would do that. <laughs> yeah. No, they could be big. They could be really big. Most aren't. Yeah. But the other question, you know, you didn't ask, but, uh, you know, how big? How big can it get? So that's the, <laughs> that's the size of the mushroom itself. But the below ground part really varies. So you guys are way too young. But back <laughs> in the early 90s, there was this report of the humongous fungus. And it was actually the first report of the humongous fungus was uh, just at, uh, in the Upper Peninsula, right when you cross over from Wisconsin. And uh, they were doing this research. And um, they found out that this individual was covering about 35 acres. And that... All underground. All underground. So, yeah, when that came, my phone was ringing off. (laughs) Uh, You know, the women's board wanted to take a van. I said, wait, hold, slow down. There's a mushroom over here and a mushroom over there. You'd have to know what's going on below ground. But it was all this... It's a big clone, right? So it's just this big connection underground. Uh, and then uh, somebody in Washington State found one bigger, and then somebody found one. I think the largest now is like half a mile in diameter or something like that, Super wow. or bigger than that, super big. On top of that, they took a little bit of it, grew in the laboratory, and figured that to fill that space, it would have taken at least 1,500 years old. So all of a sudden, this fungus clone is like the largest organism on Earth. So pretty cool. Contrast that to something that is decomposing a small leaf and that might survive for a day or two or growing on a piece of porcupine dung, which they do, (laughs) right? Uh, So you can have something that is very short-lived, depending on the species, uh, you know, that survives a day or two, has to produce spores and spread to something else, to something that might be living for 1,000-plus years one individual that just keeps spreading and spreading and spreading. So fungi are cool. They rock. They are the coolest things on the planet. So the plant life in Alice in Wonderland is all magical magical and strange and mysterious. There's that giant mushroom, and then there's plants that have different colors and different um, properties that you might not see in real life. Is there anything um, that actually does exist in the mushroom world that might be a little out of this world? I think the thing that falls best in that are the bioluminescent mushrooms. There's about 40 species now that are known to basically glow. They don't glow brightness. You have to see them in the dark. 
uh, around here, there's three species actually in the Chicago area uh-huh. that that glow. One is the jack-o'-lantern mushroom, which is actually quite common in the region, called jack-o'-lantern for two reasons. One is that it is pumpkin color. Uh, second is if you take that, collect it, go into a totally dark room uh, where you can't even see your hand in front of your face, let your eyes start dark adapting, you'll see this eerie green glow. Ooh. So that's pretty cool. Um, another one that it grows around here, and again, if our listeners were around in the 60s and early 70s, um, the Foxfire books. Um, Foxfire is actually the light, the glowing of the honey mushroom, uh, the mycelium of the honey mushroom growing through the wood. So I've had a phone call once where um, somebody said, oh, my my pile of wood was glowing at dark. What's <laughs> going on here? And I had explained to him that it was the, the mycelium, the, the hyphae of the armillaria that was, that was glowing. It was foxfire. But the coolest place I think I've ever been in my entire life is um, – one of the islands off of Japan, there's a, a person who studies this bioluminescent fungi. And so he's created a, um, a bioluminescent fungal garden park. And you go after hours, you go in the dark, and he's brought in these logs and whatever else that have the mushrooms on them. And you can walk the trails that are lit by the glowing mushrooms. That is so and cool. And it is just a, a truly magical place. I mean, it is straight out of Alice in Wonderland. It is just, <laughs> it was so cool. What's the, can you tell us a little bit about the history of mushrooms? When did people start eating them? Or Yeah, so, so why people eat certain foods or don't eat certain foods is just fascinating. I think it has a lot to do with, uh, with the cultural history. So I was... Um, so back to your question about history, they've been eaten from, from millennia. We know in China there's data going back 1,000-plus years, more than 1,000 years, uh, that they were cultivating uh, mushrooms. Uh, the Iceman, if you remember the uh, uh, mummified uh, person that was found in the, I think it was the Swiss Alps or, or uh, Austrian Alps, had a couple of fungi with them. None that he was probably eating, but he was using for other purposes. So we know that for thousands and thousands of years, uh, people have been using mushrooms. Um, but which ones they use is really interesting. So I was in the Venezuelan Amazon and with a tribe of indigenous people. And so, and I was with somebody who had been with them for a while. And so he's pointing out they eat this mushroom and this mushroom and this mushroom, and there are all things that are really tough and leathery growing on wood. And I was looking at the ground, and there was a chanterelle, and there was this thing and this thing that <laughs> I would have eaten, but they didn't touch anything on the on the ground. Why so is that? Probably because at some point in their history, and who knows, I don't know how long ago, they had people get sick or die from eating mushrooms that were growing to the ground. So they just decided that that was... Um, they didn't do that. And so they ate these tree mushrooms uh, that were really tough. They'd basically boil them in soup for a couple of days and um, didn't taste that great. <laughs> um, and uh, so they did that. And then, so they ate a very small number of specific things. And then you can go the other way. And I've got a good colleague of mine in Guatemala who's an ethnomycologist. So he studies what the Mayan people eat. 
And there's a hundred plus different species of things that they eat anything that's not going to kill them. Uh, so, you know, you really vary from some cultures that are mycophobic, so they're afraid of eating mushrooms, to mycophilic, which loves eating mushrooms. So it almost reminds me of the way that like certain cultures eat different kinds of meat. And other exactly. ones say that's, that's totally gross, that's taboo, that's just something we don't do. It just develops over time with the culture. Yes, yes. Is there a general way to tell, and this is, you know, probably not an easy answer, but if a mushroom is going to be edible or if it has dangerous properties or is it not always apparent? Right. So there's a great um, wise phrase in the mycological world. There are old mushroom hunters and bold mushroom hunters, but no old (laughs) mushroom hunters. Um, So there really is no easy way. you got to just be able to identify it. So, you know, I mentioned that that... um, that tribe in the Amazon ate these things in, on trees, but there are some deadly poisonous things growing on trees. Um, so there's not like, oh, things on trees, good. Things on ground, bad. No, that doesn't <laughs> work. Uh, white, no, because our edible, you know, store mushrooms, white, but so is the deadly ammonita is white. So just plain color. There's suites of characters that one just needs to know what they are. And so... Um, it's not super difficult, but you've got you've to know what you're doing. So can you tell us why, as a botanic garden, we would be interested in fungi? Um, you know, we have this mission of plant conservation and the power of plants to sustain and enrich life. So how do mushrooms fit into that mission? Right. So as I mentioned that, fungi can be decomposers, they can be pathogens, and they can be symbionts. And in each one of those cases, they're impacting and closely interacting with plants. So if we're going to be able to conserve plants, we need to know what's going on below ground uh, and understand what those fungal partners are. So one of the reasons I'm so excited about mushrooms and the way I guess I've kind of worked as as a biologist is my fungi do not live alone. They're basically... Um, dependent on other organisms and that interaction. And so as so they're a mutualistic organism, and I feel that I have to be a mutualistic scientist. I have to work with plant people, and I have to work with others to be able to actually understand going on. I can't just work on the fungi alone because they don't live alone. They live as part of this whole broader environment, and they're critically important for that. So the motto is... Be the fungi. Be the fungi, yes. Be the fun guy. That's me. <laughs> um, we did another episode not about... have a pun about fungi. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know, the, two mu- the mushroom walks into the bar <laughs> and sits down and orders a beer and the, the bartender says, we don't serve your kind. He says, why not? I'm a fun guy. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what are you studying right now? Um, and what's... Well, I guess I have two questions. <laughs> Uh, well, we'll start with that one. What's yeah. your, what are you researching right now? So one of the projects I'm starting out, which is a great example of this um, symbiosis, is with one of my graduate students. So we have a graduate program with Northwestern University. Uh, we joint teach them. So one of my PhD students is looking at the fungi associated with a rare and threatened orchid. And so the idea is understanding what fungi are required for that orchid to survive. The other thing I've been doing for a long, since I've actually moved to Chicago in the late mid-80s, 
is actually documenting what fungi occur in the region. No one had really looked at it since um, there was um, a husband-wife team in the late 1890s to 1912, and then there was somebody in the 1930s, and then that was it. That was the only people who'd ever really looked at what fungi occur here. And so uh, working with um, my um, some, some partners, especially um, uh, Dr. Pat, Patrick Leacock at the Field Museum, we've documented about 1,200 species of mushrooms in the greater Chicago region, so really high richness, including several new species. So uh, last year, I think it was last year, uh, we published a new um, chanterelle, Cantharellus chicagoensis, uh, that uh, actually grows here at the Chicago Botanic Garden. Oh, okay. The first time I saw it was actually in, in our woods here on, on, the, on the property. And so uh, what we're doing is we're documenting that this region has really high and important biodiversity. And secondly, that, you know, most people, when they think of biodiversity and conservation, they think we got to go to Brazil or Madagascar. But, you know, we have incredible richness and biodiversity here that's been protected because of the forethought of, uh, of our founders with the uh, forest preserves in the region, and so in these forest preserves and other natural areas is an incredible richness of plants, animals, fungi um, that need to be cherished and, and, and studied, and so that's one of the things I've been working on. So if someone was to come visit, take a walk through the woods, what are some of the mushrooms they might, they might see, typically? So um, some of the really obvious things are, and that's that people call me about every year um, is the sulfur shelf, uh, which is this big, bright orange bracket mushroom that grows on the side of trees. And I know that a couple of places in our woods that along the path that that's shown up and people call over here, what is this thing? <laughs> um, there's puffballs out there. There's earth stars. There's all kind of other mushrooms. So it's our woods are really quite rich. Uh, we did a survey a couple of years ago, and there's probably you know, a couple hundred species of, of mushrooms that are growing in our woods. But someone shouldn't go sample because they don't know what they're doing, probably. Well, someone, well yeah, first off... What's your stance on foraging? Yeah. Right. So <laughs> my status on my idea of foraging is, um, first off, that all of the forest preserves in the region, so Cook, Lake, McHenry, um, DuPage, all disallow, don't, do not allow... Uh, collecting on their property. So that's my first statement. Um, when it is possible to collect and it's legal to collect in state parks. So at Illinois Beach, uh, at Kankakee, that's perfectly legit. And of course, on private land, if you know who the landowner is. Um, so my thing is that it doesn't, that collecting mushrooms do not hurt the mushroom. Remember I said that most of the organisms go in in the ground. Uh, so it's like picking an apple on the apple tree. The reason that uh, that's banned from collecting in forest preserves is twofold. One is it's the trampling as you get off the trail. You're stepping on other things that may not, you know, other rare plants and whatever else. And secondly, if you've got this big, beautiful mushroom and you collect it, then the people coming after you don't see it. And so I think one of the reasons that the forest preserves are uh, particular about not collecting, is that it should be available to everybody, not just the first person who gets there. But from a biological standpoint, it doesn't hurt the mushroom. 
It sounds like there's a lot left to learn about mushrooms and fungi, and there's so many mysteries left about them. What are you most interested to find out? Yeah. No, that's the great thing about fungi. So I got into mushrooms. That sounds weird. Into mushrooms. <laughs> Better than shrooms, man. Um, I started studying fungi in my graduate school um, because of that very factor. Here was a group of essentially important organisms, lots of them out there, and we know such little bit about them. So we've estimated that we only know about less than 10% of all the species in the world have been documented. Wow. Right? So there's a little over 100,000 species of fungi that have names, and we estimated somewhere around 2 million species that really occur. That's incredible. Yeah, and so we keep every year finding more. Like I said, find we have at least probably five, six, seven species uh, that have not been named yet in the Chicago area, and probably even more than that, but that's the ones we've been able to identify so far. So there's a lot of diversity out there. We still don't know a lot of, we know general ideas about their ecology, but not specific things about their ecology. So last question. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite mushroom? You keep talking about the chanterelles, is well, that it? Well, the chanterelles, or? and there's a very closely related species, the, the craterellus, the black trumpet, which is my very favorite mushroom from a, at a well, I guess I should say I have two, two favorites. So for the frying pan, <laughs> The chanterelles and the craterellus are my favorite there. What do you this put, wonderful what's your netty recipe? most oh I'm a simple guy. I like to taste my mushrooms. So, you know, just saute a little bit and some olive oil and butter, maybe add some shallots to it, but just enjoy the mushroom, right? Um, so that's that's my favorite from that. And then I've got this um, group of mushrooms called Licaria. Uh, which is important mycorrhizal, one of the important symbiotic fungi that I started working on for my master's thesis, and I still been dabbling with it ever since because you never finish anything. Um, there's always something new, some new question to answer. So I have to say that's probably my other favorite, just because it's taken me all over the world and kept me busy for thirty plus years, uh, and so that's. That's a favorite of mine as well. The mushroom of your stomach and the mushroom of your heart. Yes. <laughs> exactly. You converted me, at least. I didn't know all this stuff about mushrooms and fungi. and Yeah, I think they're interesting. They're fun. They're fun. They're fun guys. <laughs> thank you, Greg. Sure, my you've, pleasure. You've enlightened us a lot. Yep, no, thank you. <laughs> I love talking about my mushrooms. So there you have it. Mushrooms are fun guys. And so are the scientists who study them. And we all want to visit Japan ASAP. Botanical Mystery Tour is produced by the Chicago Botanic Garden. You can find us at botanicalmysterytour.com or on iTunes, Google Play, and your favorite podcast apps. Next up, we're talking about Shakespeare and how he drew inspiration from plants and vegetables found in traditional English cottage gardens. And if you're in the Chicago area, come visit the garden. You can find out more about everything happening at the garden and what's currently in bloom at chicagobotanic.org. So that's it. Thanks again for listening. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Erica. And thank you for coming with us on a botanical mystery tour. 
Botanical Mystery Tour is produced by the Chicago Botanic Garden. Any reference to specific pop culture media does not constitute or imply an endorsement by the Chicago Botanic Garden. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the Chicago Botanic Garden.